Welcome to Going Off the Record. I'm Colin Williams, and this is where I talk with the executives, entrepreneurs, athletes, and changemakers working to make this world a little bit better every day. You'll hear their true stories, their failures, their successes, and most importantly, you'll learn what makes them tick. So let's get going off the record. So I'm psyched. Today we're here with John Higginson, a very good friend of mine. An established CTO has been across all sorts of really, really cool companies, but he's at his newest one, which is by far the coolest, Chief. So John, welcome. I'm going to let you tell everybody a little bit about what Chief is, and uh, because I won't do it justice. Yes, Chief is a professional network for women. And the company is three years old. It's a startup. And it was created by Carolyn Childers and Lindsay Kaplan to change the face of leadership because they were women executives, different companies, and they had come out of a meetup and they're like, we don't want to do this again. We don't want to go to another meetup where we're one of a very small number of women where it feels like we're not part of the club. And so we want to create a forum for women to help other women, the the network of the most powerful women in America. And that's what they did. And chief from there, it's interesting because chief in the beginning, as you might imagine, there were there was a lot of skepticism, like a, a network for women. I don't know. Is that a company? Is that a business? We've grown so rapidly in our three years and we have more than uh, 12,000 members now. We just raised our Series B, which valued the company at $1.1 billion. Capital G, Google's venture capital arm, led that round. And it's just been a tremendous experience. And for me, We'll probably get into some of this, but this has long been a a real passion of mine. It's something I've tried to work on throughout my roles in tech is to help women in tech. And as I became a CTO, using some of that power to really drive that change. And so to work at a company where that's the mission is really amazing. But also, it's a big and going to be a much bigger company to build a tech platform that enables this kind of connection this kind of promotion and information sharing is pretty cool. I mean, we're building a social network in some ways, but a social network that people come to for moments that matter. We are building a way to connect people in person. We are building a way to find your community wherever you are, whatever industry, whatever part of the country you are. And that's a pretty cool tech challenge. Yeah, that's, I mean, this whole thing's amazing. I want to talk a bunch about Chief in particular because you're a man who's a CTO at a women-led organization that's made for women. So I want to get into all of that as we talk about your growth and your career and all that good stuff. Let me lay some ground rules down just so, because you know I'm a lawyer and I got to make sure I do this stuff the right (laughs) way. But just as we go through these stories, if you know that it's okay to use somebody's name, please do. But you know, anytime I talk to somebody on this podcast who's a lawyer, I'm like, please don't breach confidentiality. I really don't want to be sued. (laughs) Second, this is all about being candid in yourself. So four-letter words are more than okay here. (laughs) So even though we're being recorded, we are definitely going off the record. And beyond that, there's really no rules. So uh, think about, we want to learn about you, what makes you tick, what advice you have, your journey. I think that's really, really helpful, even for me as a getting to be an older guy, um, hearing how other people have done things. But, you know, for this younger generation that comes up in tech, you know, I always used to have the questions, how do you do these things? I don't know anything. So teach me. So let's get into it. Uh, All right, let's do it. <laughs> so give me just your background. I know you have a really interesting story and I don't want to you know, give up the goods too early here, but 
coming from a single mom and things like that. Yeah. Tell me about your background, where you're from, and just how you grew up. Yeah. So as we're talking here today, we're both sitting in different parts of Chicago. I grew up in the Chicago area. I grew up in a town called South Holland, Illinois, which is in the south suburbs of Chicago. Very kind of stereotypical suburb of Chicago. It was it was a relatively small community. South Holland has the distinction, though, it was it's one of the few communities that still has blue laws. And so that meant that nothing was open on Sundays. There were no restaurants in town. There were certainly no liquor stores or anything else. I remember it was a what? very big, yeah, I know. No. <laughs> yeah, it was such a conservative town. And I remember it was a really big deal the first time we got a McDonald's because, well, first they didn't. And then later, I think they allowed the drive through to be open on Sundays. But it was just a super conservative town. It was Funny too, because like it was very much like the town in the 80s where white suburbia, mom and dad and kids and homes, dad went to work, mom stayed home, and you know, mom maybe was the den mother or you know, did other things with kids, but definitely didn't go to work. And and by extension, like really didn't make any decisions about anything, about the home, about anything else. My experience was really different because my parents got divorced when I was four and I was an only child, which, you know, make of that what you will. Although I, I will point out that I do share things. Um, I had to learn it, but I, I have learned to share. My mom <laughs> went to work when, you know, I was four. My grandparents would babysit me. My dad in the early days after the divorce would, you know, would also babysit me during the day. And my mom went to work in restaurants and she very quickly went from being a hostess to being a manager. And for most of my life, I, I knew my mom as the manager of this fine dining restaurant. And so my life experience, like all of my friends, like dad went to work, mom didn't. And they were kind of fascinated. Like your mom works? Your mom's a manager? Like people work for your mom? Like, what's that like? And later on, I worked for my mom when I was in, in high school, which taught me a lot. It was kind of a miserable experience because my mom was really hard on me because she wanted to make it very plain that she was not going to play favorites. But I think that was an important life lesson. But it was also important too because I saw how she managed the connection she had with the people that worked there. And I also saw how hard it was that how little regard customers and suppliers had because they're like, how can you be in charge? You're a woman. How can you possibly? I remember I went with her one year, I think it was a senior in high school, to McCormick Place to, to the National Restaurant Convention. And it was just a sea of white dudes. It was like my mom and, and my mom stood up. She had like this giant beehive hairdo, even, even in like the late 80s, early 90s. It, but it was just like all dudes and my mom. And, you know, it was like a visual representation of like the environment she waded through day in and day out. It's interesting because, you know, I think there's probably people who are going to listen to this and think, oh, well, so much has changed. I don't know that that's that true, right? Because yeah. obviously, you know my wife very well. For those of you who don't know, she runs her own business, has for 15 years. She runs an organization with one of John's really good friends, Megan McCann, Jane Hamner, um, called ARA, that's Attract, Retain, and Advance Women in Technology. So she's a very successful entrepreneur. She's been doing this stuff for a very long time. And when we found out we were pregnant, she had multiple people ask her when yeah. she was going to give up her business. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, re just, I remember that. Yeah. It's like yeah, we're asking if she could even like how she was even going to take time off. Like, right. Uh, right. How dare she? Yeah. And let's face facts. <laughs> like 
I'm giving up my business before she is. <laughs> this is you know, that's the world that we should be living in. But it still amazes me that these antiquated values that you think have passed us up, and maybe we've yeah. certainly gotten better, but that shit's still here. And it's still here. It is. Yeah. And for your mom to go through that, I can only imagine. Like my mom was a, you know, she was a homemaker. She stayed at home with us. We grew up in Lake Forest, right? Very conservative, traditional values, same type of thing. But my mom was a bulldog. <laughs> it, it was not that she was incapable of, of running a business or doing it. That was just the choice that she made. But it really is interesting. It, it's weird to see the evolution over time and to think it's gotten better, but we still have so far to go, which we can get into about Chief and all that. Good stuff. <laughs> yeah, it feels like there's a little progress, but it still feels like the attitudes are there because, you know, Leslie's experience is the experience of a lot of women I've known in my life and, and certainly I'm sure Chief members, which is, Yes. Okay. Yeah. Women should have the ability to be executives and CEOs. But when you're at work, who's taking care of the kid, right? Women get that question all the time. No man ever gets the question. Well, you just had a baby. Why are you back at work or worse? Like I definitely know male friends of mine who have taken paternity leave and who've gotten grief for that too. Saying, you know, why are you back at work? You know, what are you doing at home? Like men have no role to play in that. Yeah. You had, you had nothing to do with it. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I know certain men who are the primary caregivers who don't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the amount of shit they take, like you're some lesser human being. Look, I'll take working any day over being a full-time parent because being a full-time <laughs> parent is light years harder than working. I mean, it just is. Yeah. So for anybody to discount the react, like the fact that somebody is going to do that, well, you've missed the boat, like, because it's hard <laughs> as hell. And anybody who takes that on as a full-time thing, that's a full-time job, 100%. Yeah. And it really is sad. Like you look at that opposite side of this, of this coin, you, you say these men who've decided that's what they want to do and they're outcasts. Like mm -hmm. that still exists today. Nobody's like, oh, great. You're staying at home with the kids. It's like, what's wrong with you? You can't right. work. And that's really depressing. So now that we're talking a little bit about your childhood and stuff, what kind of kid were you growing up in this conservative yeah, <laughs> this conservative town. <laughs> what was it like? What kind of were you outgoing? Were you were you no. mischievous? You know, I was that shy, you know, quiet, nerdy kid, spending a you know a decent amount of time in my room with books, and then later on with my computer. And you know, I spent a, a ton of time in my own head as a kid. And I, I think being an only child was definitely part of that. You know, I was also part of the generation that was called latchkey kids where you got to a certain age where you're like, I think I was 12 and I would come home from school and there'd be like this gap before like my grandmother or grandparents would be there. And so I'd be by myself for like two or three hours a day. So I, like looking back in some sense, it gave me a measure of independence and, and a self-reliance that I probably wouldn't have had any other way. But, but it also definitely led to like that, you know, like I'm just going to live in this world of my own creation. And I did that in school. I was, I lived at this weird intersection of, I was in honors classes. I wasn't a dedicated student. I was interested in typical nerdy things like chess club, but I also hung out with the goth kids who were doing really bad covers of Cure songs. So I, I sat in this weird you know, like between all these different, I was comfortable in like these different, these different worlds. It just kind of kept to myself, which in some ways too, like if I think about 
the way that I show up in professional settings where I kind of sit at this nexus between like the tech folks and business folks and marketing people. It, it isn't all that different really from doing that. But yeah, I mean, a lot like I remember I went to some event schools, like some field trip and everybody's like running around outside some art installation running around and I brought a book with me and I was just like sitting under a statue reading the book <laughs> while everybody else was running around. So yeah, that was me as a kid. That's cool. I mean, it's funny. I was an athlete, but you know, and every, I think everybody kind of expected, oh, well, you're going to be like the athlete type. Then I sang in chorus and everybody thought I was kind of this, what the hell is wrong with him? Like you're supposed to stay in your vertical, like you're supposed to stay in your vertical. <laughs> and it's funny because I look back at my legal career and you know, the big thing when you're at a law firm is they say, pick something, find a niche, go really deep in it. And that gives you job security. And I always thought even from back then into the professional world, I thought that was such a stupid idea because why wouldn't I want to learn a bunch of stuff? I mean, I'd rather go an inch deep and a mile wide than a mile right. deep and an inch wide, right? I'd rather learn things about other interests and learn much wider breadth of things than just say, well, this is my, this is where I'm going to sit. This is my vertical. and I'm going to hang out here. So I think that's cool, right? And I think that probably informs how you are as a professional. It certainly informs how I'm as a professional. And I think it's made me more open-minded to a lot more different things where, you know, people always thought like, oh, there's Colin. He's going to be, he's going to be the fucking meathead, right? Where's the gym? Go find the gym. And like, wait, why is he walking in the chorus? <laughs> why is he playing drums? Like, why is he doing this other stuff? Because it's fucking interesting. <laughs> it's cool. And I think that's, it's one of the first as a kid, like it's one of the first ways we get pigeonholed into doing something and i you know despite you know despite the nerdiness i played hockey when i was a little kid i yes played hockey when i was like 10 to 13 and i played floor hockey before and after that for a while and ultimately I, it was harder for me to play hockey because i never got everybody else grew and i didn't and it's as you know because you still play today it's hard to be the smallest guy on the ice and yes. <laughs> But I really liked it. And I think people found that weird. Like, why do you like hockey? Why do you put your books aside and play this kind of violent sport? But I really loved it. I love the game. I love the just the mechanics of it. And I have to admit, you know, there were times where I kind of like checking people into boards. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> but if I, you know, if I'd listened to people, they're like, oh, that's not your path. Like, you should study hard and be valedictorian and do this. It's like, that wasn't interesting to me, but that's hard. Like as a kid, like conformity is, and I'm sure you see some of this with Grayson too. Like there's just a lot of conformity. I think we try to put on people at all stages of their life. Yeah. And you know, it's funny you mention it because there's actually, there's something that happened with Grayson. So those of you who don't know, Grayson's my son, he's six years old. And he said something in class the other day, which the teacher told me about afterwards and I appreciated it. So we could correct this, but one of his friends was reading a book that you know, traditionally you would say it was a girl's book, right? I don't even know what the book was, but let's just assume that it's, it's in pink and it's got all sorts of what we would traditionally consider girl themes and things like that. And Grayson said, you can't read that. That's a girl's book. And his teacher told us afterwards. And I said, why'd you say that? And I think it's, it's still just ingrained in them, right? He's six. Yeah. He no, but the ability to branch out beyond what people think you should be is something that we have to deal with at this early age to tell him, <laughs> Your friend can read whatever the hell he wants. You, right. I mean, you have no idea what he's going to grow into, and it doesn't matter. And whoever he becomes, he becomes. That's who he is. But don't ever like 
discount what he's doing. Like maybe you should read that book. Maybe it's really good. Yet he got it, but it's really interesting to see like, like you said, the conformity, it exists right. at an age that's so incredibly young. It's really terrifying. But why wouldn't you go try other things? Like you said, playing hockey is a blast, right? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> there's nothing better than some good physical contact every now and then. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't like Nietzsche, right? <laughs> <It doesn't, laughs> exactly. Yeah. Not, there's... They're not mutually exclusive, right? You can do both. And that's honestly, we probably have a better world if everybody dipped their toes in a lot of stuff instead of just saying, this, this is where I sit. <laughs> yeah, this is yeah, this is my corn. This is all. You can be a warrior poet, right? You know, those things exist. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me about school. You went to public high school, then you went to yeah. Northern Illinois. Tell me about that whole path. Yeah, I went to public high school. So in South Holland, I, I went to the public schools, and then I went to Northern. So my public school journey. So there's two things that affected my school career. One was that. When I was a, a young kid, I had a lot of trouble in first grade, and it took a while for the. You doctor. were that kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I wasn't in trouble. I had a lot of trouble with like the curriculum. Oh, I got it. So, I got it. Right. No, no, no. My trouble in school wound up being more minor, like intellectual rebellions later on. No, but I, I really struggled with learning and or just like going programs, and it took a while. To figure it out. It, at first, they thought I had poor eyesight. You know, they thought something else. And what it turned out to be is I had, it took me a long time to learn how to write. It took me a long time to learn how to do any of like the artwork, like coloring and lines and things like that. And as a result, like I didn't really make it through first grade. What it turned out to be is that my motor skills were late in developing. And so I could get it intellectually, but I couldn't make my hands do the things they were asking. And in first grade, like it's all about make an A, make a B, draw right. this thing. And so, but at the time, like the school that I went to thought, oh, there's something really wrong with this kid. And they sent me to all these doctors. And as a kid, I remember that was really strange. And, but it turned out they figured that out. So I actually repeated first grade which is a, cra a crazy <laughs> thing because over the years, it's kind of funny. I've met people and they're like, why did you graduate? Wait, how come you didn't graduate a year earlier? I'm like, well, because I took first grade twice. <laughs> and they're like, really? I'm like, I know. Yeah. But it was in a lot of it was just like, it just took forever to figure out. That certainly affect because like the friends I made as a really little kid, like in kindergarten, like then, you know, I made a whole new set of friends. The other was I, I, probably a holdover from that, but I think just, you know, the, you know, as I grew up, I was a, a somewhat indifferent student. There were things that I really liked and it wasn't until probably I was in fifth grade. I had a teacher, I still vividly remember her. Her name was Mrs. Nikeza, who, you know, I kind of bumped along through the early grades and she was the one who took me aside and said, Hey, I see you really like reading. I see you like to write things. I like, see you like to make up stories. I see you like to like build things out of these pipe cleaners and things like that. You know, let's create some things for you to do there. I think she was the first one who really let me or, or pushed me to like to follow the things that I was interested in. It really changed my outlook on school, but I was definitely in a different student and that carried all the way through my university life. Cause the, the things that I was interested in, I did the things that I wasn't interested in. I would just do it to get by. 
But you know, my public school education in South Holland at, at McKinley, MacArthur, and at Thornwood High School was actually really good. I think the curriculum was good. I had some really good teachers, particularly in high school. I had some really thought-provoking teachers. I had teachers who fed both my interest in learning about the world in things like computer science or things like political science. And then I had teachers who were willing to let me do independent study work in computer science because I was a hardcore computer kid by the time I got to high school. And they actually let me create a class of my own design for coding when I was a senior, which was pretty amazing. The Brown yeah. University of South Holland. I love exactly. that. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I mean, my great, other than I think my freshman year, I think the first semester of my sophomore year in high school where I really did try to focus and like get, you know, consistently good grades. After that, it was very indifferent. My report card was always all over the place. It'd be like two A's, two C's, you know, it'd be, <laughs> it drove my mom insane. My teachers couldn't figure it out. And I was sitting in a lot of these honors classes and one of my friends wanted to be in our valedictorian. And she said, I don't understand you. She's like, why don't you just work harder? I'm like, eh, I'm just not that interested. <laughs> I love it. The I, I think I was indifferent to school right up until I got to law school and like mm -hmm. I was paying for the entire thing. And I was like, <laughs> I, maybe I should take this seriously. Like there seems to be something. But I was kind of mm -hmm. like you. I just, school was always relatively easy for me. Certainly I was not good at math and there was things that were very, very difficult for me. But there was a lot of it was pretty easy and I could get by yeah. by doing the, the least amount of work possible. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, me too. Which is kind of a bummer when I look back, like I had all these amazing opportunities. I'm like, why didn't I take better advantage of that? But it is what it is. I'm, not, I'm trying to instill that in my son. Like, these are good opportunities. You should learn right. as much as possible. Right. And not just be like, I can get a B minus on this test and I can get back to drinking beer. Like that's... <laughs> <laughs> but you mentioned something else too that's interesting about your first grade experience mm -hmm. and, and sort of the pigeonholing of like, you know, everybody develops at a different rate. And you right. remind me of something I, that I don't think I've talked to you about, but I was watching this special on Norway and why Norway has the most, per capita, the most Olympic medals of any country in the world. And it's not close, right? And their whole philosophy towards sports is that you don't keep score, you don't cut anybody from the team, and you don't take anything seriously until you're 16 years old. Mm -hmm. And when you're 16 years old, if you choose to pursue that sport, then you're old enough to make that decision and you pursue it and they will put all the resources in the world behind you to make sure you're successful at it. Mm -hmm. But they're so good because they don't weed out kids who develop slowly. And what they said is all their best athletes are the late bloomers who didn't yeah. quit because they weren't pushed out of it, right? And it's this idea that we have in the United States of you're five years old, you should be like, you're gonna be a baseball player, I'm gonna push you down this route. You're in first grade, you haven't figured it out yet. Like you don't know how to draw. Right. I still don't know how to draw. <laughs> 45 years old. I don't know how to draw. But to look at somebody and be like, oh, there's something wrong. Like, no, everybody right. just develops at their own pace. And if you let them develop at their own pace, we might actually have a much more successful society. We could be Norwegian where everybody's happy. <laughs> but I thought it was a really interesting thing where they said, look, we don't exclude anybody. And then you make it your choice to pursue this path. Right. And yeah. by doing that, you haven't, you know, the kid who's nine years old who doesn't make the team and quits in the United States, there keeps playing and says, I like this, I like this. And all of a sudden they have a growth spurt and they're six foot 10 and they're the starting center on the Norwegian basketball team, right? <laughs> it, to me, it was a really, really interesting thing. So 
That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we do that a lot in American society at all stages of development. We find ways to put gates up yep, and, yep. and keep people from going forward. Yeah, and it's sad. It's sad, right? You wonder how many kids could do so many different things. And we're, we're entering this world of specialization. We talked about this already, right? Mm -hmm. Which is just ludicrous. Like you, you shouldn't specialize until you get a career, right? Until right. then, you should be yeah. trying everything. I mean, even in a career, like you should be trying different stuff. But it makes me kind of sad that it's like we live in a world in the United States. It's all about find something, be good at it, avoid everything else. And if you're not good at it at a young age, you're a failure. And it's just mm -hmm. me, it's kind of lunacy. So it's interesting to hear that you had that experience. And I mean, yeah. it's great. Like, <laughs> yeah, and it was hard. And I'm sure like we talked earlier about what I was like as a kid and kind of, you know, living in my own world. I'm sure that experience contributed to it because, you know, at a very young age, I was marked as different, right? I, I lost all the friends I'd made in kindergarten because now they were in a different grade than I was. And right. I'm sure that definitely played a role in how I looked at the world and just, you know, what my childhood was like for sure. Yeah. I mean, it really, cause you know, obviously Grayson's in kindergarten I'm sitting here thinking, you know, you have these parent teacher conferences, which are ludicrous. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're ludicrous, but I appreciate the teachers for taking the time and doing it. But if they told me like, you know, his, his math skills don't seem up to par, my response would be, he's fucking six. Like <laughs> what do you want him to be doing I can't keep his attention for three seconds. The fact that you've taught him to do two plus two is a miracle. Right. And I am sure in the future when he has a better attention span, amazing things will happen or he'll be normal or whatever it is. But to look at somebody in first grade and be like, you can't draw these lines. We're going to mm -hmm. have to hold you back. Come on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so then you go into college, you go to Northern. And I know a little bit about the story, like you tried studying computer science, but you didn't right. stick with it because you wanted to try other things. And so right. tell me a little bit about that whole journey. So there's a through line of the indifferent student part that goes all the way to college. So when I was in high school, I wanted to go to college, but I didn't really think a lot about it. Like, it's funny because it isn't like growing up, I said, oh, I love this university because I follow their basketball team or this university because I've read this about it. College is kind of this abstract concept to me about, you know, I, I be covered buildings and big libraries and things like that. But I didn't really have a, a school in mind. And part of that, I think, too, is that I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Neither of my parents went to college. My dad has a sister and she has three kids and none of them went to college and they're all older than I am. My cousins are. And so none of them went to college. And so my family, there was a little bit of, I didn't have an experience in the family I could fall back on, nor were they for the most part, other than my mom who really pushed me hard to go to college. Nobody really was like, you should go to college. This is something you should do. And this, these are all the cool things you get out of it. And so I took the ACT I did well on that. And junior year, my mom said, you really need to start applying to colleges. And so I only applied to one. I applied to the, <laughs> university, applied to the university of Illinois because I had been there for their, every February, they would do this science exhibit. They would open up the university and they had little lectures on 
physics or early computer science, things like that. And so I would go down there as a school trip and we'd hang out on campus for a day. And I really liked the campus and I, I thought it'd be a cool place to go to school. So I got in and got the materials from U of I and I sat down with my mom and we realized that there was no way that we were going to be able to afford U of I because as, as ridiculously expensive as college is now, U of I was by far the most expensive option in the state at that point. Yep. So I was kind of bummed, didn't know what to do, had a guidance counselor in high school who kept pushing me to decide. And I said, I don't know, got accepted to U of I, but it's really expensive. I don't think I can go there. I don't know what to do. She's like, well, I went to Northern Illinois. You should go there. And it's a good school. You'd like it. I know some people there. So I applied at Northern Illinois and I got accepted. It was literally process of elimination. Had never been to the school, knew nothing <laughs> about it, and wound up getting accepted and going there. And it's really cool because it wound up being a really it wound up being a really good experience. It was a really good school. Among other things, I made lifelong friends by going there. My roommate and other people who lived on the floor. We've stayed friends now for years and years. And I think like that experience and those friendships really shaped me too, because they're the first people I knew outside of my hometown. You got to know them and got to know different perspectives. But like you said, I, I started as a computer science and English major. I had a double major. So I'd always loved storytelling. I'd always loved literature. And I was a computer kid from the time I was 12 is when I started coding. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll do both of these together because in my mind at 18, my plan was, well, I had two plans actually. One was maybe the band that I had in high school that didn't work out. Maybe when I go to college, I'll find the next REM and <laughs> yes. then we'll make it big. But if that doesn't work out, I'll make video games. I'll be able to do storytelling and I'll be able to do coding and I'll be prepared to create video games. And the band thing didn't work out, obviously. We're not sitting here uh, talking just before the rock and roll hall <laughs> yeah. ceremony. So we got to get the jazz fest. We're, we're playing <laughs> the 30 minute jazz improv we'll be doing later. And then the computer science program. So I've been coding at that point for six years and through being self-taught through taking a bunch of things that my high school offered. I knew a lot of different programming languages. I knew my high school had both a mini computer and, and I knew how to code on Apple computers and Commodore 64. And I went through the computer science curriculum with the advisor there. And boy, it just felt like so old. It just felt so antiquated. It was a lot of legacy computing, a lot of business applications. And although this wasn't, my my perception wasn't accurate because there, it, there was more depth to it. And there were definitely classes that would have benefited me had I taken them about data structures and security. But when I looked at them like, hey, I know all this stuff. And I asked the advisor, can I just skip like, can I just go to the 300 level courses? Can I just stop doing this? And wait, Elizabeth Holmes did that. <laughs> she did. <laughs> she did. I haven't seen the entire miniseries, but I, I don't think it worked out the way she hoped. <laughs> it, I'm gonna I'm gonna ruin the ending. It doesn't. 
<laughs> oh man! No, I so thought for, I thought for sure I could I could go to the drugstore and have a thousand blood tests done and you know, <laughs> single drop on a pin. Oh well, well, thank God that WeWork is going to turn out okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that uh, some investment stories. <laughs> you know when they make TV shows out of your company's founding, it's, it's usually not good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wanted to get out of doing these things that I, I felt like just were reruns for me. And I couldn't, I just, I waited and waited. I, I spent my entire freshman year taking other courses. Some of them I needed to take. Some of them I just thought would be interesting. And my sophomore year, they, they said, hey, you have to declare a major. You have to decide what you're going to do. And you have to start getting serious about the curriculum. And so I just said, fuck it. I'm, I'm going to major in English. And I did. I made that my major. And it was funny for a lot of different angles because for my mom, my mom was like, but you love computers. Why are you going to major in English? And what are you going to do with it? And I said, I'll figure it out. Uh, and for my roommates, and the people I live in the doormat, they're like, but you love computers and you do this. And oh, and by the way, can you still help me with my programming <laughs> exercises? <laughs> because I, I have a friend in college, he's my roommate, my freshman year, who was a, an information sciences major, who throughout our college career, I would help him with the coursework he was doing. And he does joke with people. He's like, how did your English major roommate help you get through your computer science class? <laughs> you must be really bad at computers. <laughs> but in hindsight, like even though that was like a impulsive decision and it wouldn't have made a lot of logical sense to anyone who looked at it, it actually did wind up being really valuable longer term for my career. It It taught me that it was okay to take a risk. And that was a pretty big risk. The major actually let me, it taught me a lot about communication, which as it turns out is both incredibly important in executive leadership and a really rare skill, particularly yes. in tech leadership. And it's getting worse. <laughs> and it's getting I'm, worse. It's getting worse. Everybody's sitting on their phone. They forget how to like have a conversation. It, nobody knows how to communicate ideas in a an accessible way, a straightforward way. And it also, because the major was a lighter weight requirement in terms of credit hours, it allowed me to take all these other classes in the university to, you know, to fill out what I needed to graduate. And so I took 300 level political science classes. I took 300 level psych classes. I took a class in uh, what was then like uh, yoga and, and, and movement. And it was really interesting. Like I learned a lot of things. I learned a lot of different ideas. It fed a hunger. I'd always had to learn different things, but also looking back, it, it taught me a lot about just critical thinking and about letting different perspectives in, which is going back to the conformity thing. I think that's another thing we tend to impose on children and even adults is like, there are it's, it's really bad now with social media, which is there's one opinion or there's one point of view or one tribe and you stay in your tribe and you don't let other ideas in. And I remember 
one of the great experiences of college was being able to argue and debate all these different things. Some of them were social concerns. Some of them were political concerns. Some of them were ideas about technology, but you could do it in like a healthy intellectual way and not in this, how could you even hold that view? It's ridiculous. You must go away now. And that all came out of the fact that I had this major that really, you know, let me broaden my horizons in that way. It's really interesting because I've always viewed it as there's two philosophies on learning and neither of them are wrong, right? One is Mm -hmm. pragmatic, which says, you go through school and you learn a trade or you learn you know, a profession and that's what you do. Like I have a re- very good friend who I don't think had any particular interest in studying accounting, but his dad was you know, a very significant executive at a very big pharmaceutical company who did finance and said, well, do accounting because then you'll always have a profession and safe and blah, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. then there's also the theory of like some people maybe shouldn't go to college and they should learn how to be, you know, whatever it is, a trade, Right. Right. Um, you can become a mechanic or whatever it is, and you can make a lot of money. And that's and then there's the other philosophy, which I sit more in the camp and it sounds like you sit more in the camp, which is the the chance to go to college and learn things and do all sorts of different stuff. To me, that's far more important. I went through a liberal arts college, so I had no choice. Right? <laughs> I couldn't be a business major, an accounting major, or a finance major. I was history and psychology, so I'm effectively academically useless. But, and to be totally honest, I did those things because I thought I'm going to go to law school. And that was a dumb decision. If I could go back, I think I, this is going to sound strange, but I think I would study either music or theater or both. Mm -hmm. Because number one, music is incredibly interesting to me, but theater also gives you the ability to express yourself and stand in front of people and not be concerned about it. Public speaking, there's all these different values that I think that would have taught me that would have been incredibly useful for later on in life. But people mm-hmm. would have said you're a theater major. That's useless. What are you going to do with that? But that's the, you find use utility in whatever you do, and right. then you take that into your world and say, "This is what I learned." Right? right. If I had become an accounting major, I'd be miserable. I'd be an accountant, <laughs> and I'd be miserable. <laughs> well, if you think people would would look askew at being a theater major, imagine when you tell them you spent an entire semester studying Milton's Paradise Lost. How well that translates into a lucrative career. But I mean, you mentioned it, the ability to, re- I mean, I always look at law school and people say, what'd you get out of law school? Other than lots of debt and a lot of misery, although New Orleans was a great time, it taught me to read and write critically, right? Mm-hmm. And that's incredibly valuable. So I will always look at law school and say, it gave me these two things that I didn't have coming out of college. And I was pretty good at reading, I guess. I don't know. I can write. <laughs> but it really taught me to be succinct and get rid of the bullshit and be able, like you yeah. said, convey something in a very simple way that's accessible to everybody. That's valuable. So it's really, I think, whichever philosophy you subscribe to, it's you need to take from it what you think is valuable and apply it. And it doesn't mean that if you don't do a trade or something specific to what you may do in the future, that there's not a lot of value in what you know, what you're studying and what you're going to take out of it. I think that's right. I think the main thing is that you decide for yourself what path you want. I've definitely known people who, for who college wasn't their thing. They had realized early on that they wanted to do something with their hands or do something else and, and maybe go to a trade school or do, or apprentice in some way. But I also think the thing about college that, that people and colleges forget is when you're 18 or 19, you have no fucking idea what you're really going to do. And I mean, kudos to anyone who is that age and knows what they want to do with their life. But most people don't. 
And I think that's why people who go to college, like the, the ability to learn and experiment and, and it doesn't matter. Like one of the great things about tech is it's not just my journey. Like my journey is not at all unique in tech. Like the number of music majors and theater majors and political science majors who are doing coding or doing DevOps or who are running engineering teams is enormous. And it's all because they could learn those parts of it. But the things that came back to communication and working with other people and being creative got formed in other ways. And I, and I think that's another disservice we do is like, well, you must know when you're this age and, you know, it carries through to your 65. I just, I, I think most people don't know. And I think that is, it creates a really false expectation of what the potential of what people can be. Yeah, I think you're a thousand percent right. So this all came into the world. You learned all this stuff. You became an English major, and then you got into <laughs> the professional world. So give us right. like just a quick background of how you got the chief, and then let's let's yeah. talk about chief because I'm really interested in talking. Yeah, about yeah, yeah. So uh, coming out of school, I got a job at what was then a startup, a company called Applied Systems, which is still around. It's a pretty big insurance tech company. It's on the south side of Chicago. And when I joined, it was early there. They were a small company, just it was privately held, single owner, and still huge numbers of people working out of the owner's house, just trying to get traction. You know, going back to my mom, my mom had this vision of me going to college and then graduating from college, putting on a blue suit and a tie and going to work in a glass and steel office building every day. And so I got this job and it's her fault anyway, because she knew people that worked there and got me an introduction there. But now I'm going to work this place down in the south suburbs. You know, I'm going to the owner's house. I'm not wearing shirts with collars. And it's you, just, were, you were tech before. before uh, yeah, we were. Yeah, yeah. Half the time I didn't wear shoes in the office. It was funny. It was such a unique and really valuable experience because being part of a startup at that stage gave me such an immersion in a bunch of things that I never would have done if I'd gone to an established company. I got to talk to customers. I got to do data migrations. I got to put together hardware. I got to work on applications we were building. I got to play around with new technologies that we were trying to figure out what they might mean for what we were trying to build. And that was just an amazing experience. And because the company was so small and so new, as we grew, opportunities came for me to be a manager. And I give a lot of credit to Bob Eustace. So Bob was the owner of the company. I don't know why. He had faith in me. Like There was something he saw, and he would keep giving me opportunities to lead things. And opportunities I never would have gotten anywhere else, because certainly on paper, I was not qualified for them. But he gave me the opportunity to do them, You know, to learn and grow in those roles, and ultimately the last seven years that I was there for 14 years, the last seven years I was there, I ran technology there when uh, the co-founder retired. And that was my first CTO job. And from there, I've been a CTO at there, at FTD, at Wheels, at Anova, at Groupon, and now at Chief. It's awesome. So let's get into Chief. I find it fascinating, right? And I'm sure you've heard this, that you know this organization for women, built by women, mm -hmm. successful, powerful women, then hire a male CTO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and no, I mean, number one, look, I think it's fucking fantastic, right? Because that says like, 
the norms should never apply. Mm-hmm. But what have you heard about that? Has there been any backlash or anything? I mean, I'm just curious what that journey is like. Yeah, there hasn't been backlash. It's a funny story. So last, I think early last summer, I got a call from the recruiter who was working with Chief on this. And initially when he reached out, he was looking to network because Carolyn, our our CEO, was, as you would expect, was looking to bring a a woman tech leader into this role. Yep. And in particular, she was looking for somebody who would be on one of the coasts because at the time, Chief had been founded in New York City and had a decent number of members in San Francisco. And we were at that point working on launching a a location, a clubhouse in San Francisco. And so we talked a little bit and I told him I was interested in the role. And he told me, I don't know, John. He's like, you're in Chicago. He's like, I know you don't want to leave. He's like, Carolyn really wants to find a a woman leader to, to take this role. And I said, I totally understand. So a few weeks later, we, we talked again. I, again, expressed my interest. And he said, well, let me have you talk to Carolyn. And we did. And we had a really good conversation. And the interview process went you know, went on for a little while. As I, I talked to her co-founder, Lindsay Kaplan, and other people who were on the executive team at that point. And I think at the end, what made Carolyn comfortable with it and we've joked about this. I said, so how did that search for a female CTO in San Francisco turn out for you? <laughs> and <laughs> I think what made it work and made it make sense for Carolyn was that my commitment to the mission was really genuine. And I think I said this, I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago. If you look backwards, like if I connect the dots backwards, where I wound up in chief makes total sense. I grew up, you know, I was raised by a a single working mother. That inculcated me in this real passion to see equal opportunity for women in the workplace and women in leadership. When I was an engineer or a manager, I tried to create teams that were more collaborative. I tried to bring women into, into those teams we were doing hiring. When I became a CTO, I could just mandate changes. I could say, we're going to change our job descriptions. We are going to change our interview processes. We are going to invest in our women in tech groups. And it's something that I've just been committed to that even when it wasn't part of my job, I think that you know, real genuine commitment made a huge difference because this wasn't just, they're not just hiring me because I had worked at these other companies. They're hiring me because I, I believe in this mission. And I'm connected to this mission and I want to help deliver it. And then, you know, certainly I had the the technical experience, the technical chops, the leadership chops to do it. And I think it was, I think it was those two things. But Carolyn certainly shared like that was a lively debate with her and her co-founder about because they'd said, you know, at some point we'll likely have a male executive. Is this the right time? Right. And is is John the right person? And I I'm I'm incredibly grateful that it worked out because it is such an amazing company. Just it's just an amazing group of people. Carolyn is such an awesome CEO and such an awesome visionary leader for that company and I just know the impact that we're going to have is just it's going to be tremendous. I I just I feel like I said this to the team when we did the fundraise that this is our chance to put a dent in the universe. And I really see Chief doing that over the next several years. You know, it's amazing because there's still so few women who work in tech 
And ironically, you look at the hiring dearth and everybody says it's impossible to hire engineers. Well, why don't we start including women in this profession and when they get involved with it, not excluding them by them walking in the door and saying, this is a team of white guys, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not comfortable here, right? Right. Um, so I got in the door, but now this isn't a place, you know, it's that whole thing about diversity and inclusion, right? Like diversity right. is inviting somebody to the dance. Somebody inclusion is asking them to dance. And to me, it's like, well, if we need to solve the problem that there's not enough engineers, 50% of our population basically is still not included in this industry. And if we included them, maybe there wouldn't be this dearth of engineers. So right. it's, it's pretty astonishing. And hopefully, I mean, I know chief is an executive thing, but just opening up this world and saying, hello, <laughs> it's 50% of the fucking population. They are more than yeah. capable of doing these jobs. And you know, hopefully my team is now going to, I'm hoping, cross your fingers, that we're going to have two women engineers on a team of three, right? That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. It'd be really cool. And that's, they're beyond capable, right? <laughs> like, right? These women, they're astonishingly good. And it's really sad that it's great that organizations like Chief are coming into the world to start breaking down the walls and saying like, have you ever thought about how incredibly stupid this is? <laughs> it's just incredibly yeah. stupid. And we complain all the time about how we can't find people in tech, right? Not we as chief, but like we in as a tech industry complain about that. And yet we automatically exclude a huge part of the population. And I think the other thing to something you said, which is something I learned when I was at Enova, we actually, we would take this out of our culture survey data that one of the ways to help women get into the company is representation. And so making sure they're not the only woman on a team of guys, bringing visibility and support to the women in tech groups or other ERGs, and just giving them the support systems and the peer mentorship to do that goes a long way to keeping women in the organization. And then that representation brings more women in. Because if you're a woman interviewing and the interview lineup is all guys and the team you're going to join is all guys, you're not going to be super comfortable with that and probably not going to join. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, I don't understand how people don't get this, right? It really is. I mean, because I've sat in a room of white dudes and said, holy shit, I'm in a room of nothing but white dudes. Yeah. And it doesn't, obviously it doesn't make me uncomfortable. I'm a white guy, but it makes me uncomfortable theoretically to think like, is this how it's? It's like, is it always going to be like this? Because, I mean, let's be honest, most of those white guys I probably don't like. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like I'm like, oh, I feel really comfortable because I'm around a bunch of white dudes. Like, if I don't like you, it doesn't really matter whether you're white, black, you know, Asian, doesn't matter. Like a man, woman, non-binary, if I don't like you, I don't like you. So it's an interesting problem. and, And I always think about it in that context of people say, I can't hire any tech talent. Well, 50% 50% of the population isn't part of your hiring process. Right. So right. Yeah. maybe if they were, we would all have less of a problem with this. And it goes back to like things we, that the industry tells itself. It's like, yeah, we want more women, but we're not going to hire anybody who had a four-year gap in their work history. Well, that happens a lot to women because they, have, they still take most of the burden of childcare. Or we're not going to hire somebody who didn't graduate from a computer science program at this top 20 university. Okay. Well, there's, there's all these things that like what you say you want and your actions don't align. And that's why, you know, that's why you're in the place you're in. School snobbery is a whole other thing, right? Yeah. Um, You know, it's funny when we used to hire people at the law firm, I would always say like our most successful attorneys often came from Chicago Kent. 
which is a good school. It's not, I'm not saying it's not a good school at all, but it's not Harvard and Yale, right? Mm -hmm. But the people who came from Kent had a grittiness to them, like a desire to prove themselves in a yep. way that somebody who went to Harvard or Yale just doesn't, who has a sense of entitlement, who says, right. you're lucky to have me. And like, look, you they, everybody gets taught the same things. Maybe there's some base level intelligence that somebody at Harvard has that somebody at some other school doesn't, but it doesn't matter if you don't have the grittiness, the work ethic, the desire to be great. Like, if you just think that's all owed to you, you're going to be shit. And so <laughs> I've always thought, yeah. you know, you go look for students wherever they are, because you're going to find gems no matter what the school is. Um, right. This is awesome. So we've got three minutes. I don't want to take up your entire day. So let's get into the lighting round. Lightning round. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> are you ready for it? I'm ready. All right. Favorite movie and why? A Clockwork Orange. Whoa. And Because you're a dark motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I like my art to be out there. I think visually Kubrick does an amazing job just with how he created that universe of A Clockwork Orange. It asks some pretty deep questions about society and free will and, you know, what the dark side of free will is if you do that. And I think it's Malcolm McDowell does an amazing job of both making you hate him as the street thug and making you feel sorry for him when they try to convert him into a respectable member of society. So I, I think it's just a really cool film. And given that it was made in the 60s, it's an, it's an amazing it's time. art for, yeah, for that. Yeah. Yeah. We, I was just having this conversation, a much deeper movie about how Predator has withstood the test of time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> because we were at a friend's house uh, yesterday and the movie pops on and me and my buddy Simon are like, oh, Predator. And both of our wives are like, what? Like, <laughs> no, this movie is always great. <laughs> well, it asks an important question. Was this somebody Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about, which is we all talk about how awesome it would be to meet aliens from another right. planet. And he says, we don't seem to take a moment to realize that we share 99% of our DNA with chimpanzees and we put <laughs> chimpanzees in cages and we eat them. <laughs> and that's what Predator teaches us is like, yeah. be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah. Where meeting aliens goes really south. <laughs> All right. Fi favorite book and why? Uh, Sometimes a Great Notion by Ken Kesey. So Ken Kesey wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That was his book before this. So Sometimes a Great Notion is, it, to me, it's like the quintessential great American novel. It is a sprawling story of a logging family in Oregon. But it's a really interesting study in like family and personal dynamics. And also, the reason I think it's like the great American novel, it really examines like the changes in America over time. Because in the story, you have one brother who is like this super intellectual academic, you know, wears glasses and another brother who's just has spent his entire life cutting down trees and like the clash of the worldviews. And then the way that Ken Kesey just paints the visual picture of it is really cool. He also went mad after he wrote the book. So I, I don't know what that means. He spent a good 15 years like doing the Kool-Aid acid tour and and just kind of you know disappeared for a while but it's a great book well all the, all the great writers right you got to go mad. <laughs> all right favorite person other than me and why well you call <laughs> <laughs> i'll have to explain this one so 
I'm going to say me. So here's what I'm going to say me without, <laughs> without, without sounding like Kanye. This is a... <laughs> You're going to start referring to yourself in the third person? <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing I, I learned and just for what we talked about earlier is you do have to like, you have to get to a place where you like yourself, where you, you acknowledge your limitations, you acknowledge your faults, you acknowledge your shortcomings, but you, you like who you are and you don't spend time wishing you were different. And I think as a kid, like I spent a lot of time thinking that like, oh, you know, if only like I could, you know, if I could be taller, or if I could do this, like, I think that's an important life lesson I've learned. I'm very lucky to have people in my life who've been hugely, who I care about deeply or hugely influential. And you are certainly one of them who I, who I mean everything to me, uh, but I, I think you have to be comfortable in your own skin. Yeah, that's a good one. I didn't have- that's what, I never thought of that response in that way. That's that's <laughs> awesome. What's your biggest pet peeve? Bureaucracy. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Bureaucracy of all kinds. <laughs> you know, I, I did one of these with my buddy, Kevin Sherlock, and he had a very like pragmatic, intelligent answer to that question too. Mm-hmm. And mine was like, I hate it when people chew with their mouths open. <laughs> God damn it. I need to start thinking more about these questions. All right. If somebody was going to play you in a movie, who would it be and why? I think I'd pick Keanu Reeves for guy in Hollywood. For a few reasons. One, I think it definitely seems like his life philosophy and mine share some similarities. He likes dogs. And I think he's got the hair to do it. You know, and that's a non trivial part, I think, of anyone who would play me in the movie. That's good. This is one that I love. That's probably going to be very interesting when I have some other folks on this podcast who will be like, uh, no, but somebody <laughs> hands you $10 million tomorrow. Are you retiring? No, I don't think any amount of money would make me retire. I certainly do in the long term, will not want to work a full-time job. But I think the other things that I do, which is mentorship and working with startup companies and angel investing is something I would do forever. I never see myself retiring as long as I draw breath. And so I, I there's no amount of money that would change that for me. Makes sense. All right. Last one. What's the most important trait that you look for in people? I would say sincerity. I, I think I'm long past being willing to deal with anyone's bullshit. I think I just don't... I don't want to be spun. I don't want to be sold. Like it's true in personal and professional life. It's like, you know, tell me what the problem is or, you know, do you want this role or not? Just tell me. Like, I think that's something that's missing a lot in interactions. And it's like, just, you know, I'd rather just deal with reality than, you know, guess or like, you know, try to unpack all the spin. Look, I've been a CTO for a long time. So if I want to talk to people who want to sell me something, I have all kinds of opportunities. All I have to do is answer one of the half dozen calls I get every day from some vendor. Um, but I, that's the most important thing to me. Let's just talk yeah. about reality. Yeah. I mean, that's that type. Mine is always like a moral compass, right? Which ties into the same thing. Like, yeah, if you don't have a moral compass just stay the fuck away from me, I don't know. I don't have any time for it. If you literally don't know the difference between right and wrong, please just stay away from me. Well, that's it. Thanks, John. It's John. Awesome, Colin. The, the CTO of Chief. Really happy to have him on the podcast here. I appreciate it greatly. And hopefully when we get this thing really up and going, we can bring you back and we can revisit some of this stuff and have another chat. That would be awesome. Thank you, Colin. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. 